and we're going to show you how horse racing evolved, how it tracked the trends in America at the time, how technology factors into it. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Amplify Horse Racing Podcast. Timothy Lateau here. A note before we start the show, this is a horse racing hangouts edition. The hangouts are Amplify's monthly virtual live stream that can be viewed in video form on Amplify's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. The original version of this aired on March 7th and contained a lot of visuals to accompany the subject matter, so be sure to check that out to see the museum artifacts that are discussed in the podcast. Did you know you can find thoroughbred jobs in Florida in Wire to Wire Racing Digest? That's free at wiretowire.net. This Florida Equine Workforce Act is brought to you by the Florida Thoroughbred Breeders and Owners Association and the Florida Department of Agriculture. Now, here's our Executive Director, Anise Montplaisir. Welcome to another episode of the Amplify Horse Racing Hangouts. My name is Anise Montplaisir. I'm your host. I'm also the Executive Director of Amplify Horse Racing which is a nonprofit to get youth and young adults involved in the thoroughbred industry and exposed to more educational and career opportunities. So the Horse Racing Hangouts are our monthly virtual live stream event that are also recorded for later viewing. If you can't catch all of this, definitely go on our YouTube or Facebook or Twitter and you can catch the replay which is awesome. And this particular episode is also going to be in chapters. So you'll be able to follow pretty easily to uh, make a note and say, oh, I ended at chapter four and I can go pick up on YouTube later at that point. So that is really, really exciting. And I'm pumped for this episode today because I feel like this is something that I'm also going to be able to benefit from personally. And that's because we are streaming a horse racing history lesson with the National Museum of Racing and Hall of Fame. So I'm really excited that we're also able to stream this episode off of their platform. So you might be watching it on Amplify's Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter, or the National Museum of Racing and Hall of Fame's Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. So welcome to any and all viewers today. When it comes to horse racing history, you know, I feel like it's something as a youth, I know that I personally was really interested in learning the history of the industry and consuming as much as I possibly could. And the more I got involved in working in the industry, uh, I became more caught up in keeping up with, I guess, day-to-day -day news and current events rather than actually looking back on the history of the sport and understanding how did horse racing actually start in the United States. So before we get too in-depth with this episode and introduce our guest for today, you guys know if you've watched before, I love making announcements, especially on upcoming Amplify events that you guys can take part in. So the uh, Amplify Horse Racing works with the Kentucky Equine Education Project Foundation to host a Careers with Horses tour series. We launched that last year. We are kicking it off this year on March 30th with a tour of Hallway Feeds. That is a horse feed company here in Lexington, Kentucky. So if you want to register for that, we're going to be sharing the registration across our social media platforms. And um, you can also look it up on Eventbrite. So again, Careers with Horses Tour 
at hallway feeds if you want to learn about some of those careers that might not immediately come to mind, such as working with horse feed production, then that would be the tour for you. So getting back to the topic for today, the mission of the National Museum of Racing and Hall of Fame is to preserve and promote the history of thoroughbred racing in America and honor the sport's most accomplished participants in the official National Thoroughbred Racing Hall of Fame. So they're very qualified to be presenting to us today. And I'm also going to say the National Museum of Racing and Hall of Fame is located in Saratoga Springs, New York. So do plan a visit and check out the museum in person when you can. Our special guest for today, museum educator Matt Reichel, will take viewers on a ride through time of horse racing in America. So we're going to be starting with its beginnings in the 1600s all the way up to present day uh, racing and what it looks like today as a pastime. So we're gonna be going through the National Museum of Racing's galleries. And so actually following some of that stuff that you can see live and in person when you get to the museum yourself. And we're gonna cover various areas, eras of horse racing from the colonial era to pre-Civil War and post-Civil War. So there's a lot for us to dive into today. Before we bring Matt on, uh, a couple other things that I want to add. Please ask questions, leave comments. I think I already see a couple people that are in the comments here. We have a couple people watching. Uh, hey there, Megan. Thank you so much. I see that Megan was a jockey. Thank you all so much for watching. So as you guys can see, we can actually bring your questions and comments up on screen as we are live with this show. So once I introduce Matt, if you guys have questions for him, or maybe you just want to say, hey, you guys are doing an awesome job. This is a cool show. Whatever platform you're watching on right now, uh, we can bring those comments and questions on screen. Back to Matt, because I'm so excited to introduce him. Matt Reichel is the museum educator for the National Museum of Racing Hall of Fame. Matt worked in the field of education in New York's capital region for five years prior to joining the museum. Upon graduating from Washington and Lee University in Lexington, Virginia, where he earned a Bachelor of Arts in History, Reichel taught at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy and at Saratoga Central Catholic and the Saratoga Film Academy. Following his undergraduate studies, Reichel earned a Master of Arts in Museum Studies from Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. He has also worked at the New York State Museum in Albany. A 15-year resident of Saratoga Springs, Reichel enjoys theater in his spare time and is a member of the Dramatists Guild of America. So welcome, Matt. You're so accomplished. I'm really honored to have you with us today on the Horse Racing Hangout. Thank you, Anise. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so happy to talk about this subject. Horse racing history is fascinating, and American thoroughbred horse racing history is so cool because of how closely it tracks the development of American history and how those events impacted horse racing in tandem as we move in our 400-year journey that we're going to be having today. So I'm very excited to be here, and thank you for hosting this. This is great. That's awesome. And I'll be the first to admit, I am not an expert in this subject area. So I'm really glad to have you here walking us through this. Like I mentioned at the top of the show, I'm going to be here taking notes and learning from a lot of this because while I've gone through the museum before and it's an amazing resource with all of the history that you guys house there, you know, there's 
you never stop learning in this industry. You might pick mm-hmm. up on a tidbit here and there. So uh, I'm just going to hand it over to you and you can kick us off with the presentation. And if people have comments along the way, we might take a pause and answer some of those questions. But uh, you can just go for it, Matt. Okay. Sounds good. Well, we'll get started then. Uh, hi, everyone. As Anise said, my name is Matt Reichel. I'm the museum educator here at the National Museum of Racing and Hall of Fame in Saratoga Springs, New York. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about the museum before we get started. So we started as an institution in 1950 here in Saratoga Springs. We first began in the Canfield Casino. If you've ever been to Saratoga Springs, the Canfield Casino in Congress Park. We opened there in 1951 and we moved to our current location at 191 Union Avenue in 1955. And we've been there ever since, right across the street from the historic Saratoga Racecourse. And in the years, we have inducted almost 500 members in our Hall of Fame, uh, both human and horse. And every year, we induct a few more. Uh, so we are committed to preserving and promoting the history of thoroughbred racing and acknowledging its most accomplished participants in our Hall of Fame for future generations. Uh, one of the things that we do here at the museum is we like to tell stories. And one of the stories that we like a lot is the history of horse racing in America. So what we're going to do today is we're going to go through uh, a bit of a virtual tour through our galleries. So we have a section of the museum that are our historical galleries where guests come and they take a walk through the eras of horse racing, starting in the colonial era in 1600 and gradually working their way to modern day. So we're going to go through those galleries ourselves today. We're going to highlight some of the most important items and we're going to show you how horse racing evolved, how it tracked the trends in America at the time, how technology factored into it, all kinds of really great stuff. The first uh, gallery we have in the museum is our Colonial Gallery. So this tracks the history of horse racing from the beginning of English settlement in the 1600s. Now, horse racing had already been a popular sport in England. It originated from Greek and Roman times where chariot racing was incredibly popular and it gradually evolved into the sport of horse racing in the United Kingdom. So when colonists from Europe migrated over to America, they brought that sport with them. So horses are not native to the Americas. So when the colonists from Europe wanted to import their sport, their beloved sport into North America, they had to bring those horses with them over from Europe. So this is a cross section of a ship that demonstrates how this process was done. So because horses needed to be imported all the way from Europe, as you can imagine at the time in the 1600s, it is a very expensive and very time consuming process. So horses needed to be lifted in a sling like you see, over into the ship, down into the belly of the ship. The floors of the vessels are covered in sand and the process of sailing from England to America takes about two months. So it's super expensive. It takes a long time to do. And because it's so expensive, the only people who can really afford to do this at the time are people with a whole lot of money. And at the time, that was plantation owners in the Deep South. They could afford to import horses from Europe over to America. So the American South became more or less where the horse racing epicenter in America began. 
in New England, those states were mostly run by the Puritans and horse racing was completely banned as it is. So all that was left was the American South and kind of sort of New York. But at the time, uh, the American South is where all the horses were going. That's where most of the tracks were being opened up. And that's where the epicenter of breeding took hold. So you have a sport that's slowly coming into America. It's starting in the South. And as you'll see soon, that kind of um, uh, it, it factors into what will eventually be our biggest national crisis in our history uh, in the Civil War. So now we're going into our pre-Civil War, pre-Civil War gallery. So after the American Revolution, America becomes its own country. And what happens is horse racing becomes more or less our first national pastime. So in the early days uh, of America being its own country after the American Revolution, it was American presidents that helped to popularize the sport. Many early American presidents were huge fans of horse racing, were huge fans of horses. There was at the time a race course, the national race course in Washington, D.C., which was just a stone's throw away from the White House. So American politicians and presidents frequented the national race course, and it became kind of a sort of um, a place to be seen in the, uh, the D.C. early American political elite. Uh, George Washington went there all the time, but it was Andrew Jackson who arguably was the most involved in horse racing of any of our presidents. Uh, Andrew Jackson owned a part of a racetrack in Tennessee, and he entered horses into races all across the country under a pseudonym. Everybody knew it was him. It was not a secret, uh, but he entered horses in, in races all around, all across America under the alias Andrew Donaldson. Um, it was the worst kept secret in DC. Uh, and he also had his own thoroughbreds housed on the grounds of the White House itself. He was super passionate about horse racing and he helped to further popularize the sport, make it even more of a national pastime than it already was. Uh, my personal favorite Andrew Jackson story is he was so passionate about the sport that he ended up fighting a duel over it. Uh, it was, I believe, his third duel. He fought a lot of duels, if you know Andrew Jackson. Many, many duels in his lifetime. The story behind that was he had wanted to set up a match race with another owner who had pulled out of the race at the last minute. There was some disagreement over who should pay a forfeiture fee. Andrew Jackson wanted the man to pay a forfeiture fee. The other man did not. Uh, they then started to print unsavory things about each other's wives in the newspaper, and it gradually spiraled out of control, and then Andrew Jackson challenged the man to a duel. Uh, he won the duel. He took a bullet in the process, and he had that bullet in his chest for the remainder of his life and the entirety of his presidency. So just to give you a sense of how serious business this was for President Jackson. He took a bullet for horse racing and he kept that bullet in him for his entire life. So you're at a, an early period of America. Americans are trying to find their own national identity. And a lot of presidents who had been involved in the American Revolutionary War, rode horses themselves, helped to make that a very popular sport with the people. When we get into the 1820s, the South at this point, like I said, Southern plantation owners can afford to ship horses over from Europe. So horse racing is primarily centered in the South. At the time, Southern states had 42 tracks 
Northern states only had nine. Uh, Kentucky was becoming an epicenter of breeding in America. And what happened was, as the political tensions between North and South gradually got worse in the years leading up from 1820 into 1861, horse racing became an avenue to display those animosities uh, on the racetrack. So in much the same way where during the Cold War, the Olympics was used as a political tool uh, between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, horse racing was being used as a political tool between the North and the South. Uh, match races were being set up between Northern states and Southern states, and those political tensions were flaring up on the racetrack. And as I'm sure you know, those tensions eventually boiled over into the American Civil War in 1861. So it's really interesting that you have a moment in time where horse racing is becoming this national pastime, but it's becoming uh, such a pastime that it's now being used uh, to exert political differences and, and demonstrate tensions between uh, northern states and southern states. So it reflects the political, uh, the political disagreements of the time and the political developments at this early stage of American history. So this is Lexington. Lexington was a racehorse during this era uh, leading up into the 1860s. And I point him out because at the time, he was one of the most dominant sires in America, to the point where he sired so many offspring that there were still Lexington offspring coming into racing as, as far late as like the 1980s. I think the line finally died out in the 1980s at some point. But practically every thoroughbred racehorse in this chunk of time had a little bit of Lexington in him. Uh, now, I bring Lexington to your attention because he's going to be an important demonstration of what happens to horse racing when 1860 turns into 1861 and the Civil War begins. So I like pointing this out. Uh, this is actually Lexington's horseshoe. I like showing this to people because this is actually item number one from our collection. Uh, our entire collection, which now has 26,000 some odd items, started with Lexington's horseshoe as the very first one. Uh, and I love bringing it up. It's great. This thing is nearly um, 200 years old now at this point. Well, 150 years old, pardon me. Um, and we, it's, it's very cool. I just, I like showing it to people because it's a really unique item in our collection. I was actually, I wanted to ask about that quick, like, yeah. This might be, you know, a question that you'd get on tours. How do you end up getting an item like that? How do people donate items to the museum? And what was the story behind that particular item and how the museum came to have it? So I'm not entirely sure the story specifically behind Lexington's horseshoe, why it was number one. I know that Lexington was such a prominent horse that his horseshoe would have been a highly coveted item by anyone. Uh, when the museum was being founded in 1950, it was organized by a group of very influential people in the horse racing world, in the thoroughbred racing world, uh, a lot of wealthy financiers in Saratoga Springs and the rest of the country. Um, and I guess the symbolism of Lexington's horseshoe being number one would be uh, as kind of a foundational item for the rest of the museum. There's some symbolism there because of how important Lexington is. Yeah. Yeah, um, definitely. That's amazing. Yeah, but if, if you ask how it is that we accept items. Uh, we have a wonderful 
uh, collections department who organizes the, the accession of items into our collections. Uh, we go through a whole process to make sure that the item has the correct provenance, in this case, meaning we can tr we, I, we know where the item is coming from, we know that it's legit, and we know that there's no um, unexplained gaps in the chain of where we got it, uh, so wow. that we can go all the way back so we know where it's from, and we can trace it all the way back to, to, um, to ensure that whoever's handing it to us has the right and authority to hand it to us. Um, so it's, um, it's a process, because we want to make sure that everything we have in our collection is just. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Thank you. I feel like that's the kind of question that you might actually get on a tour because mm -hmm. you guys have so much valuable information and artifacts in the museum. And who knows, there might even be somebody out there that has something incredibly, you know, valuable or special or historic that they might be interested in donating. Now they know yeah. how. So yeah. I'm back to you, Matt. <laughs> absolutely. Yes. If anybody has any piece of horse racing history that they want us to look at, give us a call. So now we're going to head into the post-Civil War gallery. So horse racing in America kind of has two distinct eras, pre-Civil War and post-Civil War, because of how much the Civil War completely changed the face of not only America, but uh, our sport. So I brought up Lexington before because he's an interesting case study of what was happening during the Civil War. So for the most part, horse racing in America is completely suspended for the four years of the American Civil War. And for very good reason. Um, horses became a military target for each side. So horses were starting to get requisitioned for the war effort. There wasn't enough horses to actually do horse racing. So a lot of horse racing gets suspended at this point. Uh, tracks start getting repurposed to, to serve military ends. A racetrack in New Orleans, which the Union occupied and used as a camp. Uh, so a lot of horses are getting requisitioned for the war effort, including Lexington. Now, Lexington was never actually uh, captured because when Lexington's owners realized what was happening and that horses were going to be taken for use in the war effort by the Union and the Confederacy, they went on a four-year-long campaign to basically hide Lexington anywhere that they possibly could. So they spirited him throughout the entire country to make sure that nobody knew where he was. And then at the end of the Civil War in 1865, he finally came back out again. Um, so yeah, that that's a fun story uh, about their love for their horse in Lexington. Uh, but yeah, for those four years of time, uh, horse racing mostly is suspended. I say mostly because there's one interesting exception and it's Saratoga Racecourse, which opened in 18, uh, 1863. Uh, a little bit after the Gettysburg Address. So what happened there is during the Civil War, there's a lot of fighting going on in the American South. Uh, by the time the war is over, the South is devastated. Uh, lots of damage, lots of infrastructural damage, and there's a lot of death. So horse racing used to be uh, centered in the American South at this point. But after the Civil War, tracks are burned. There's not a lot of horses left. There's so much economic devastation that the South can't really support the sport as much as it did before. So the epicenter of horse racing moves to where it's still able to be run, and that's New York State. Uh, Kentucky remains an epicenter of breeding at this point. But once the Civil War ends in 1865, 
racing for the most part moves out of the south and goes up north uh, to New York. So this is a painting depicting, depicting the uh, first futurity, which was run in New York City, the first one run in 1888. Uh, so when you exit out of the civil war horse racing is moving to the south oh, i'm sorry moving up north you start to see the purse sizes get bigger and bigger and bigger now that's done because these track owners want to attract better talent they want to attract better competition so the incentives get bigger and bigger and bigger uh, this painting depicting the first futurity run in 1888 the purse for this race was forty thousand dollars which at that point was absolutely unheard of. Uh, it would be equivalent to about $1.5 million today. Uh, so that is a gargantuan amount of money uh, for 1888, and it attracts a lot of talent. If you notice the horse with its legs outstretched like that, the horse does not make this position. The horse never does this ever. Uh, to the naked eye in the 1880s, the horse looks like it runs that way, but in real life, it never actually does. It wasn't until Edward Muybridge invented a very early version of a video camera that we were able to actually see how a horse runs, and we could finally tell that the horse doesn't actually make this pose ever. Uh, but if you look at a lot of art from before um, the 1900s, horses are practically always painted that way because uh, nobody knew any different. I was actually going to ask you exactly that question when you dove into explaining it on when the style of painting, how a horse moves, actually um, transforms. So thank you for sharing that. And yeah. another, another question I feel like people might have is when that transition happened from jockeys riding astride and basically sitting on the horse's backs like that mm -hmm. to now, you know, having that almost perched balancing position over the horse do you happen to know that off the top of your head because as people can see in this right painting, you know that was the style of riding back then for a rider to be sitting directly on the horse's back with their legs all the way right. you know down over the horse's belly in the stirrups yeah exactly so uh jockeys nowadays they never sit on the saddle anymore they're always standing in the stirrups um and you'll you'll see in, a, in another picture later on how uh, once the 1890s hit the 1900s, you'll see jockeys do that more and more and more, and that's depicted more in paintings. Um, that kind of reflects how horse racing is slowly becoming a more professionalized sport and a, a sport where there's a lot more on the line because the purses are bigger and the professionalization of all of the roles around horse racing, where people are now starting to squeeze every inch that they can uh, because it's so competitive. Wow. It's getting more and more competitive every year as the, purse, as the purses get bigger and there's more races to run. So gradually you get people experimenting with new techniques. Uh, and technically there's no rule that says you have to sit down. So they figured out that you can go a lot faster if you're standing up uh, and it's a lot easier for the jockey. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's a good point. Uh, the, the shift from sitting in the saddle to standing. Uh, and that's just something that happened as a result of people taking horse racing a lot more competitively than they did before. Uh, does that answer your question? 
Yes, it does. It does. Thank you so much, Matt. That's a great explanation of that. Yeah, of course. Um, so yeah, $1.5 million in today's money. Uh, it's a lot. Uh, and at this time, uh, in the 1880s, 1890s, going into the 1900s, uh, what you need to understand is before this, races were actually fairly long. Uh, they were fairly long in England as well. And when they came over to America, they also they remained pretty substantially long. Um, however, track owners figured out pretty quickly that actually, if we run shorter races and more of them, then we can get a lot more money that way. So the lengths of the races became significantly shorter. There became way more races being run in a single day. There's way more money to be made in the gambling. So you start to see horse racing a day at the races in the 1880s, 1890s, slowly becoming what a day at the races would look like for us. Lots of races of a pretty short length over the course of one day. So these are programs and condition books that were printed throughout this era. And it demonstrates how this is a sport that is rapidly standardizing. Uh, like I said, it's professionalizing and it's becoming an organized competitive sport. So these, uh, these booklets are used by spectators to help make informed wagering decisions. Uh, they illustrate what the programs are for the racing, uh, the track that day. And it's, it's showing how this is not only becoming a much more popular sport with the public, but it's also becoming uh, increasingly organized. So like I said, uh, you're seeing a sport that's professionalizing and you start to see the jockey become considered a legitimate job and a legitimate profession that you can train for. Now, at this in this era of American horse racing, most jockeys, well, a great deal of jockeys were black. Uh, in the first several iterations of the Kentucky Derby, most of them were, were won by black jockeys. Most of the highest paying jockeys in America were all black. Uh, this is because after the Civil War, you had a whole lot of stable hands uh, and former slaves, now freed, who joined the horse racing profession and became professional jockeys. Uh, so if you see down in this photo, uh, the middle there, that is Isaac Murphy, who is actually the very first person we ever inducted into the Hall of Fame, and he was a black jockey. Uh, he, at the time, was the highest paid athlete in America, and he has a win record of about 35%. Now, if you don't know, 10% is considered really, really good. 35 is unheard of. Uh, he was an absolutely dominant jockey. 35% um, win rate. I don't think that's even ever been, I don't think that's ever going to be touched ever again. Uh, so he was our first our first person ever inducted into the Hall of Fame. Uh, so during this era, black jockeys were utterly dominant. Unfortunately, what happens is once the Reconstruction era ends and we approach the 1900s, Southern states start enacting Jim Crow laws and all, practically all these black jockeys and black equestrians were forced out of the sport entirely. Uh, if you go back into our Hall of Fame inductions, um, if you go back to the the the, uh, the 1860s, 70s, 80s, there's a lot of Hall of Famers that are black jockeys, trainers. There's a lot, uh, but after Jim Crow, they were gradually forced out of the sport almost entirely. 
uh, and that that's still have been reeling from the effects of that. So now what's happening is that the 19th century is slowly becoming the 20th century. Uh, the same movement that brought about prohibition also was vehemently opposed to gambling. Uh, there was anti-gambling sentiment took hold in America in the 1910s, 1920s, and this, as you can imagine, severely impacted the racing industry. Um, so these movements were pushing for stricter gambling regulations, because uh, at this point, it is mostly the Wild West in terms of any kind of organized betting and gambling. Uh, it wouldn't be until the 1940s where paramutual betting was widely adopted. Uh, but these movements forced a lot of tracks to close down for several years at a time. Uh, in New York, New York was made to close all of its tracks for a time. Uh, they gradually reopened, but the takeaway from that experience was uh, increased regulation, increased organization, increased fairness in terms of betting and gambling. Uh, so if you could please show me the next slide. We're, we're, we're going into now the 20th century gallery. Uh, we're going to track how horse racing became uh, wildly successful and wildly popular both in America and also globally uh, throughout the 1900s. So after World War II is when horse racing if you'll pardon the pun, really hits its stride. Uh, what happens after World War II is there's a lot more disposable income. There is a lot more cars on the road. People have easy access to transportation. Uh, people have a lot more leisure time. People have a lot more income to spend and attendance at racetracks across the country uh, skyrockets. So we have uh, household toys of Belmont Park. Uh, we have uh, toys of the from the Kentucky Derby, and it's conceptualizing this horse racing at the time in the post-World War II era was as popular as baseball was. It really was a hugely popular sport. Track attendance was wicked high. You had uh, horses like Seabiscuit who became household names. Now, Seabiscuit was popular in the 1930s uh, during the Great Depression. He kind of became a symbol of hope for an America. He was seen as kind of a plucky underdog because he was a short horse. He was temperamental. He wasn't really pegged for greatness. Nobody really expected that much from him. And then in the late 1930s, he went on such a legendary winning streak. Uh, he beat a triple crown winner and he became super, super popular uh, for, for the American public. And this is when you start to see horses becoming uh, national icons. Uh, like Seabiscuit and Secretariat. So during this time, you are also seeing technological growth and we're seeing increasing organization and standardization. This is when you start to see organizations like the Jockey Club, the New York Racing Association uh, come into existence because everyone loves horse racing, but everyone agrees that there needs to be more safety. There needs to be better standardization. So you start to see the development of um, guidelines and rules and codes of ethics for safety, uh, and participation in the sport. You'll see these um, cameras here, which were used for more accurate photo finishes, uh, for fairer races. This yellow, uh, it looks like a helmet on the, in the lower right-hand corner. Is that what that is? That is correct. That is, that is a helmet. 
So this is, wow. this is part of how safety instruments are also becoming more strict. Uh, helmets, the need to wear vests, uh, the presence of medical personnel at racetracks across the country. Um, yeah, so so because horse racing, people want it to be safe, people want it to be fair, people want it to be sensible. Uh, so after the post-war, when it's becoming increasingly popular, attendance is going up, you start to see kind of in, in, in terms with that, coinciding with that, this increasing uh, push for safety and equity and all that stuff. So yeah, that is a helmet, uh, that thing on the bottom right. That's amazing. It's amazing to think how far all of that technology and the safety equipment has come. And now there are such strict guidelines for, you know, safety testing mm -hmm. for jockeys and, you know, concussion protocols and a lot of that. So it's crazy looking at this photo that this looks like, you know, a little shell that would fit over your head. Yeah. But am I correct in saying that the original, like, jockey caps were literally just caps that went over their heads, like colored caps that matched the silks? Basically, yeah. <laughs> In the early wow. days, yes, that was basically what it was. Um, just literally a cap to go over your head. Wow, um, that's amazing. Thank you so much, Matt. Yeah, of course. How people were starting to use the cameras to facilitate safer and more fair races. So now you can put a camera on every edge of the track so that stewards present at a track can immediately rewatch uh, if an infraction happens and immediately judge um, who broke the rules and produce a fair ruling. Uh, so with all this camera technology, you're also seeing increased broadcast of these races across the country via the television, via the radio. Uh, as I'm sure you know, Secretariat in 1973 won a Triple Crown. Uh, and those broadcasts were watched by millions of people across the entire country. Um, and that, that spurs increasing uh, participation in horse racing, uh, increased viewership, increased popularity. Uh, yeah, and horses like Secretariat and other horses throughout the 1970s, they become household names. They become super popular. People are producing toys of these guys. People are making movies with um, horse Sergeant Murphy. They made a movie out of him. They made a movie with Seabiscuit with Shirley Temple. Uh, and it's really penetrating um, American mass media at this. And you're also seeing horse racing respond to the increasing cultural and societal shifts of this century. Uh, so as you go into the 1960s and the, uh, the 1960s and 70s and 80s, uh, you start to see new faces in horse racing. You start to see the increased participation of women uh, in jockeys and trainers. Uh, that there is uh, Colonial, Affair, Colonial Affairs saddle towel. Uh, Julie Crone became the first woman to win a Triple Crown race when she won uh, the Belmont Stakes on board Colonial Affair. Um, and she also uh, became one of the first women to win a Breeders' Cup race shortly after that. Uh, she is the first woman inducted into the Hall of Fame as well. And you're more and more um, women participating in the sport uh, from all different facets of the sport. And this is also when you see a lot more Hispanic Americans participating in the sport. So they were recruited specifically because of their short size and stature uh, to ride thoroughbred racehorses. And they became increasingly dominant uh, throughout this century and including up till 
uh, today. Yes. So you're also seeing horse racing becoming increasingly popular uh, around the rest of the world. So horse racing gets exported to places like Japan and South Korea after World War II because of the uh, American occupation in Japan. And then it gradually moves over to South Korea and then also moves into uh, Central America and South America. Uh, horse racing becomes really popular over there. The largest track in the world is actually in Japan. It's the Tokyo Race Course with an attendance capacity of 229,000, which is ridiculous, if you ask me. Um, it also, for two years, held the world record of the largest flat screen TV in the world. Uh, just to give you a sense of how popular horse racing is becoming outside of, uh, outside of the America, uh, outside of the United States. It's also becoming a sport in uh, the United Arab Emirates, uh, Dubai, and um, throughout the Middle East uh, also adopts horse racing. Uh, so you'll start to see a, a sport that is uniquely American. It's considered an American pastime, and it's gradually getting exported all throughout the world. And some of the most lucrative uh, races are not in America anymore. They're in other places throughout the throughout the world. Wow, Matt, that was awesome. I know I've learned so much. Just what what you just said about Tokyo Racecourse being the biggest race course in the world. I did not know that. Yeah. Now I know that you know Isaac Murphy was the first inductee into the Hall of Fame. That's incredible. The fact that Lexington's shoe was the first, you know, object uh, that museum, uh, object number one of the museum is pretty incredible. I recently finished uh, wrapping up a, well, reading a um, historical fiction book called Horse by Geraldine Brooks, which is about Lexington. So to be able to hear you expand more on the history of his influence in the sport is pretty mm -hmm. amazing. And so I do want to take some questions. If anybody out there has questions or comments, I'm going to put up our little questions banner here. I have seen a lot of people write in some really nice comments here. Let's see. Thank you so much to our friends from the real players inside the backstretch for watching. You guys make some awesome content. Love Megan, you guys. Yeah. Megan Ludlow, thank you so much for watching. Megan had lots of nice comments. Thank you so much. Willie Miranda, thank you, Willie, for watching. He says, thank you, Matt and Anise. I have so many questions. I will wait when I visit the museum for the first time this summer. That's great to hear. Excellent presentation. Yes. Well, Willie, if you have any questions right now that you want to ask, you can certainly send them into the, the questions or comments, and we'll have Matt here with us for a couple more minutes. Arnaldo, thank you very much. Let's see. Josefina Posada, thank you so much for watching. Is this kind of around the time where bloodlines from America started to be exported to Europe, or is that later in time? Okay, interesting question. So it's this is this is a cool question because the exporting of horses each way kind of tracks the political situation of the world at the time. Wow. Uh, so after the American Revolution, um, the War of 1812, in 1812, 
there is at that point a complete embargo on trade with the United Kingdom, and that kind of uh, that sentiment of anti-British sentiment, American patriotism during the American Revolution and subsequently the War of 1812, kind of spurred Americans to forego European imports in favor of making their own. Um, so uh, it actually started pretty early where Americans were uh, starting to, to have their own breeds exported the other way. Uh, because that anti-British sentiment meant that they didn't want to bring British horses into America, or it was just straight up illegal to do so. Uh, so a whole homegrown domestic breeding industry sprung up as a result of that. Um, now, American horses were bred to go uh, a lot faster at shorter distances. So like I said, European horses, European races are tend to be significantly longer, uh, and those horses are bred to go the distance. Um, so, yeah, because the American uh, the American norm of doing many, many races in one day meant that the races got significantly shorter. So what they needed out of a horse changed significantly. Um, I know that there was a lot of words. <laughs> I hope that answered your question. No, that I think that was great. Another uh, great book that people might be interested in if they're, you know, fascinated by that import export and the mixing of bloodlines from different countries is a book called Horse Trader. It's about Robert Sangster and it's called Robert Sangster and the Rise and Fall of the Sport of Kings, but it really had a lot to do with how um, Irish bloodlines were infused into American thoroughbreds and also um, bringing, you know, American bloodlines to Ireland. So that's one for people to check out if they're interested. Um, Steve, Isaac, <laughs> says that I, Isaac Murphy was the goat, the greatest of all time. Heck yeah. Steve was also wondering, do you have Jimmy Winkfield in the museum? Uh, so yes, Jimmy Winkfield is a Hall of Famer. Um, so he is in our in our Hall of Fame. Um, so if you come to the museum, we have a room that is just the Thoroughbred Racing Hall of Fame, where you can interact on our touch screens and um, bring up all the different Hall of Famers. So yes, uh, Jimmy was is a Hall of Fame jockey, and he is in our Hall of Fame. Awesome. And I can say from having been to the museum many, many times and seen like these you know, the incredible uh, expansion of the Hall of Fame and, you know, the really cool interactive kiosks that you have for people to be able to scroll through. And you can actually scroll and read the bio of a trainer. And if that particular trainer has horses that are in the Hall of Fame, you can click on those horses and watch race replays. So it's so easy to scroll through and be able to read about um, so many different individuals and horses that have been inducted. Do you want to talk about the film a bit, Matt? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, so the film is awesome. Uh, it's It was done by the same uh, people who developed the movie in the Kentucky Derby Museum. Uh, it is a 360 degree film experience. Uh, and it, it it's called What It Takes Journey to the Hall of Fame. And it follows the journeys of different people and how they got into the Hall of Fame. Uh, and it's such a really cool experience. I honestly don't want to say too much about it because if you haven't seen it yet, 
go in blind. Um, but it's just, it's very cool. It's our signature uh, attraction of the museum. Anybody who comes in the museum, we highly recommend that they see it because it's, it's really, there's nothing else like it uh, in Saratoga Springs. Uh, we project things onto the walls, uh, screens come down from the ceiling. It's, it's just tons of fun. Uh, I, I can agree completely with that. It's beautiful. I've seen the film probably 10 times at this point, and it still gives me goosebumps and brings, you know, tears to my eyes because it's just so powerful and how it depicts, you mm -hmm. know, the, the human equine connection and how beautiful the sport is. Yeah. So Matt, tell us what are some, uh, some other ways that viewers can get more involved with the National Museum of Racing and Hall of Fame, whether that's your educational content that you put out there, you are the music museum educator. So you're the expert on that <laughs> to, you know, even being able to visit the museum. Sure. Well, if you're ever in Saratoga Springs for the summer meet, perhaps definitely come and see the museum uh, from June to September. We're open every single day from nine to five. Uh, I highly recommend you follow us on our social media. We have Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, we upload education excuse me, we upload educational content every week. So if you go onto our YouTube channel, you'll see me, there's a lot of me up there doing, we do uh, collections connections videos where we take one item from our museum uh, and we highlight the history behind that. So if you liked this video, if you liked this stream about horse racing history, check that out on our YouTube channel because there's a whole lot more there. Uh, and if you want to learn more about uh, the opportunities that you have. We have uh, tours of the museum, tours of the Oklahoma training track nearby, all that good stuff. Maybe you want to go on a Tom Durkin tour, go on to our website, uh, racingmuseum.org. All that information will be on there for you. I guess I have one final question for you, Matt. You know, sure. I'm speaking to our audience members out there who might be youth or young adults who are just getting involved in the thoroughbred industry, just starting to learn a lot of this content, mm -hmm. or for somebody in general who's super new to the sport, why is it important to know and understand the history of horse racing? Why is it important? Oh, geez. Well, you know, if we look at horse racing today, it's so important that we understand where it was that we came from. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to study history in the first place was because you see reverberations of the past so often today. Uh, somebody told me once that history is like somebody dropping a pebble in a body of water and then those ripples just go on forever and ever and ever. And you might not see them again for another 300 years, but they will show up eventually. Uh, and I just think that's so important that we understand where we came from as a sport, uh, the struggles of our ancestors, and how lucky we are to be in the situation that we are in today, while also acknowledging that we can always be better than we are today. Uh, so that was, that's, a, that was a beautiful way of putting that. Well, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, that's why I love teaching this story. Uh, that's why I love teaching this this history of horse racing because it's it's a sport unlike anything else in the world, you know. Uh, it's mm -hmm. it's a bond between a human and an animal, and their collaboration together making something wonderful. Uh, and the fact that horse racing is is just one of our oldest sports, period, for humanity in general, is really spectacular, and we have to keep that history 
uh, alive as we move forward. I love that. And, you know, just to emphasize that there's so much depth and so many intricacies to this sport that, you know, even as you are going along and talking about, you know, the evolution of technology in the sport, I think if you look at what we have today, whether it's technology or pedigrees, and you look at how that has evolved and changed through time, it gives you so much more appreciation for what our modern day sport is like, because yeah. you understand the full depth and the changes that it's been through and can really appreciate you know, how incredible it is and how, you know, the thoroughbred really came to be what it is today. So I really appreciate you sharing this with us. You, you sound, you look like you have something more to add. Oh, I just, I just wanted to say that um, the one, the one thing about horse racing history is that you will never know all of it. There's always something else. And what I gave you today was just the, the spark notes version of the spark notes version. Um, and there's always something new to learn. Uh, so if you come into the museum, I've only scratched the surface of what we have in our galleries. There's so much more to learn. There's so much more to explore. Um, yeah, and never stop learning because I won't. Uh, there's Me certainly neither. stuff that I still need to uh, learn about. And there's always something new to uncover. That is very true. Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I look forward to getting back to the museum this summer and, you know, would like to invite anyone who watched this episode to please visit the National Museum of Racing and Hall of Fame in person. And with that, Matt, thank you so much. And I will see you in Saratoga. Yes, you will. And thank you everyone for tuning in today. Much appreciated. Take care. Bye, Matt. Take care now. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Amplify Horse Racing Podcast. Be sure to check out our website, www.amplifyhorseracing.org, and follow us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube for more of our content. If you have any podcast ideas, please email us at info at amplifyhorseracing.org. We'll catch you next time.